Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King, Lord, we come to you tonight saying that we are hungry for your word. Uh, we are thirsty for your spirit. Um, Lord, this is an attitude that I believe that we should have at all times. Uh, yet, uh, all too often, it's too easy just to get distracted by the the affairs of the world around us and things that we need to take care of and some of the things that we just don't need to take care of but are entertaining nonetheless. And we all too often don't take time to set aside a, 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 a time where we can study the Word of God, where we can read, where we can meditate, where we can chew on the, the, the truths that, uh, that you're revealing to us in the pages of your Word. So Lord, uh, let's take that time now together as students, as uh, students of the Word. Uh, Lord, we want to dedicate this time to you and um, say that uh, we are reliant upon your Spirit to reveal your words to us. Help us, Father, to uh, continue to seek an opportunity to be uh, not only obedient to the things that we're studying and learning, but uh, to put into practice the, the principles and the truths that we're learning, and at the same time, Lord, be bold uh, in our witness to, to other people. Um, we know that we have a great commission. Uh, we've been commissioned by the Master himself to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, to take this good news to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we pray for opportunities to witness, to help us to be ambassadors. Sometimes that's witnessing with our mouth. Other times it's simply witnessing by our lifestyle, by our actions. So help us to be consistent um, and faithful to the words that we're learning, uh, putting feet to our faith and letting others around us see the witness, the, 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 um, the testimony of our lifestyle, Lord. Uh, thank you for the book of Galatians. Thank you for um, Paul's passion and his uh, faithfulness to the word, to the truth, to the gospel, and his commitment to to um, correcting the errors that were present in the uh, the Galatian community. For indeed, Lord, there's a there's an opportunity for us to take that uh, the the application of what he was getting across to his readers two thousand years ago, and use that in our own messianic. Uh, congregations today. We, we run the danger of falling into the same uh, errors that some of those in his community did as well. So the book of Galatians is still relevant for us today. And for that reason, we, we seek to understand its central message, uh, the centrality of the, um, 
of the gospel of Yeshua to the Jew first and also to the Greek without the necessity of of coming underneath some sort of meritorious work system or uh, an, an ethnic uh, an ethnic driven uh, righteousness or any of that Lord we we thank you that this book is 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 uh, vital and, and important for us today it, it truly the words of God are quick and powerful they're alive they're sharper than any two-edged sword and so uh, we would do well to to listen to what it's saying uh, be with the students who've um, sat with who are sitting with me tonight in the live Skype class I pray that you'll give them in a large capacity to to understand and comprehend the words of the message of the text and that you'll give them a um, a sense of urgency to to also continue to press in and to, to study more and to learn more and to, to obey and to teach others as well. We'll be careful, Lord, to praise you for all of these wonderful things. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me once again in our study in the book of Galatians. My name is Ariel uh, Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehit. Kehilat Nuva, which is the Harvest Congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You're invited to join us uh, each week if you happen to live in the Denver area or, or near the Thornton, Colorado area. We meet on Shabbat every uh, Saturday, 1 p.m. for our Sabbath services. Pastor Mark McClellan is the senior pastor there. And um, it would be nice if you come out and join us. We're a Messianic congregation, meaning we hold to the um, as best as we can, we hold to the uh, uh, Hebraic lifestyle, uh, Sabbath, kosher, festivals, uh, wearing tzitzit, men wear kippahs, things like that. Um, so if that's your inclination or you're interested about what do these Messianics believe, well then uh, come on out. Uh, we'd love to have you join us. Um, for the Galatians study, we are in week 90, and let me date stamp the recording as well. Today is February the sec, uh, February the third. I'm sorry, 2018 for most of you. And being at week 90, we're just about finished with the study. Ordinarily, we would be at what I call a semester break, meaning. Tonight would be the last of the 10-week meetings, and then we would take a break for two weeks and then pick up the um, study again after two weeks. But because we're so close to the end of our study, we're actually pages away from the end. We're in chapter 6. We're going to be studying verse 13 tonight. And if you know about Galatians chapter 6, um, there's only 18 verses. And so I, I imagine that counting tonight... Uh, we'll probably finish the study within the next three weeks. So tonight, next week, and the week after, I think. I think that'll conclude the study, if, if I'm correct, in the way I've written the notes, plus what, what what I've got planned to teach. So for that reason, and I've discussed this with the online students as well, for that reason, I am not going to take the 10-week, two-week break. I'm not going to take the two-week break after 10 weeks. So um, tonight is week 90, and next week we'll just meet, and the week after we'll just meet. And we'll just call that week 91 and week 92. And I think this, the commentary will finish with in 93 parts or something like that. 90, 91, 92, 93, somewhere around there. Um, that's my uh, plan. We'll see what happens. So if that's okay with you guys, it's okay with me. Uh, I really uh, enjoyed the time that we've spent together. As I mentioned, if you look at the study as a whole, we've been going for a little over two years. We started in the fall of, of 2015. Um, so we've been going for two, almost two and a half years, something like that. So, um, let's turn to our study. Let's turn to our liturgy. Um, we're going to be looking at the passage that we've been focusing on. The study is kind of 
ending where it began, which is with the topic of circumcision. If you notice from my study, that's the first few, to, the first um, meaty two or three or four sections of the study focus on the topic of circumcision to um, draw us into the context of the letter of Galatians itself because I believe that circumcision, physical circumcision, the covenant of circumcision, the theological importance of circumcision in Paul's day, all of that is a, is a very important background necessary to understand the thrust of Paul's um, consternation as well as the import of his instructions that he was giving to the Galatian Gentiles in that day. So we started out with circumcision, Genesis 17, Father Abraham and all of that, what, two years ago, two and a half years ago? And now, as we're drawing the study to a close here in Galatians chapter 6, the last few verses use circumcision language again. And I think Paul does that on purpose. Uh, kind of one last parting shot at his uh, opponents, the detractors, the influencers, the Judaizers, the, the agitators, the villains of the piece. I think he's taking one last shot at their theology to get, uh, get not, you know, knock some sense uh, into what they're teaching. And so we're going to do the same thing. We're, 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 we're bringing our study to a close talking about circumcision. So our liturgy is parked in Genesis 17 again. And that's not the only circumcision passage out of the Tanakh, but it's the one of the, it's one of the central ones. It's certainly where the, this, this idea of, um, the covenant of circumcision and the sign of, of this Abrahamic covenant is, of course, introduced uh, to the readers of the Torah. This is right here in Genesis 17. So let's read our liturgy again. It's the same um, few verses that we've been borrowing for the last few weeks since we're on this topic of circumcision. This also corresponds with the, Gen- with the uh, Galatians 6 uh, verses that we're going to be studying tonight. Genesis 17, starting in verse 9, and we're only going to read down through verse, what did I say, uh, 14. So just those 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 verses. This, that's the short section we've been using. Um, the version I'm using, for those of you who are with me in the live class, as you can see on the screen, is the 1917 JPS, the Jewish Publication Society version. Give me a second, let me look at Skype, make sure everything's going on. Yep, all right, looks like we have some more students who've jumped in. Um, Genesis 17, starting at verse 9, God said to Abraham, And as for thee, thou shalt keep my covenant, thou, and thy seed after thee throughout their generations. Verse 10, uh, This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you, and thy seed after thee. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11, And ye shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of a covenant betwixt me and you. Verse 12, And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every male throughout your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any foreigner that is not of thy seed. Verse 13, And he that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the final pasuk, the final verse, verse 14, And the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. Let's go back and read the Hebrew as well, starting in verse 9. It reads, Vayomer Elohim el Avraham va'ata et briti tishmorata v'zaracha achrecha l'doratam. Verse 10. Zot briti asher tishmuru beni uvenechem uven zaracha achrecha himol lachem kol zachar. Verse 11. Verse 11. 
I'm sorry, Laot Brit Beni Uvenechem, verse twelve Uven Shmonat Yamim Yimol Lachem Chol Zachar Ladora Techem La Yalid Bayit Michnat Kasef Yes Kasef Mecho Ben Nechor Asher Lo Mizarachahu Verse thirteen Himol Yimol La Yalid Betaka Michnat Kaspacha Vahita Briti Bivsarchem Livritolam Verse fourteen Vareel Zahar Asher Lo Yimol Et Basar Orlato Vnichata Hanefesh Hahi Mea Mea Et Briti Hefar All right, and we'll stop there with the liturgy. And as I mentioned last week, there's something uh interesting in this text that doesn't show up readily if you're just reading the English or even the the Masoretic Hebrew. But I'm going to show you something from another version that's going to uh, bear a little bit of interest to our study. But I won't do it right here in the liturgy. I'll do it when I get to, into the study itself. But for now, I just want you to know that um, uh, that's the text that we're going to be using. That's that's the text that I think that bears relevance to Paul as he began to write the words in Genesis, as he as he contemplates what is the importance of this circum of this uh, covenantal sign, and how does it bear relevance for uh, my first century compatriots, my, my first century fellow Jewish countrymen, and the Gentiles who are interacting with the um, the the community known as Israel. Let's talk about that as we turn to uh, Galatians. Looking at the text before us, we're in Galatians chapter 6, and our liturgy is going to focus on uh, verse 11 through 15. Um, That's just the text that I'm picking on right now. Um, ESV is the English version I'm using, and it reads, starting in verse 11, see what See with what large letters I'm writing to with my own hand. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Verse 14, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. And then the verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And we'll stop there with the English. Let's pull up the um, Greek of that as well. This will be the... Um, this will be the SBLGNT version of the Greek, and I'm using the Bible Hub's uh, interlinear version so we can see the uh, the morphology and the parts of speech and things like that, as well as the pony translation of what each Greek word reads. Let's jump down to that same section. All right, uh, starting at verse 11 right here, the Greek reads, Idete pelikois human gramasun grapsa te eme Verse 12, Hasoi thelusin yuprosopesai. In Saraki Hutoi, Ankatsusin Humas Pertimnesthai, Manan Hina Tostaro, Tu Christu Yesu, Me di Okontai. Verse thirteen. Ude Garhoi Pertimnamenoi, Altoi Naman Fulasusin, Alathelusin Humas Pertimnesthai, Hina in Tehimatera, Saraki Kaukesantai. Verse 14. Emoi de megnoito calcasai, e me intostaro, tu 
kuriu himun Jesu Christu, dihu emoe kaz mas starotai, kago kazmo. Verse 15. Oops. Ute garperto me ti esten ute akrobustia ala kaine ketisis. Okay, so that's our uh, liturgy for tonight, Hebrew and Greek. Let's turn now to our commentary and um, pick up the reading. We're near the bottom of page 177 and the top of page 178. And I'm going to read through the uh, the commentary notes, then I'll stop and save all my explanations for after reading through the notes. The notes aren't very long, as I mentioned. They're only about a page long. So we're going to go, we're going to just basically cover all of page 178 and the uh, just the top paragraph 179 and we'll stop there with tonight uh, just looking at verse 13 alone we'll pick up next week we're going to study verse 14 and 15 right that's next week 14 and 15 in my notes and then the week after that we'll finish the study with verse 16 which is a little longer section in my commentary it, it takes about two or three pages uh, to explain verse 16 and then for those of you who have the written notes you'll notice that it dead ends uh, at at basically verse 16, I, I don't even really cover uh, by way of um, all the all the verses. I don't even cover verse 17 and 18 in my commentary. Remember, this is a this is a selective commentary. It's only cu- hitting the verses that are um, that cause the most that that are basically the subject of heated disagreements between traditional Christian. Um, theological views and interpretations and applications of the book of Galatians and now the what is recognized as the the Hebraic or Messianic or Torah positive perspective of this same book. So between these two um, uh, groups of people, the Christians on one hand and the uh, traditional Christianity on one hand and, and what is now being labeled as Messianic uh, tradition on the other hand, right? So Messianic theology versus Christian theology. Not that Messianics aren't Christian, you understand, but there's a difference in their uh, interpretation and application of, of the book of Galatians. So between these two people groups, of which I envisioned when I wrote my commentary, there are certain verses that are bantied about back and forth between these two groups by way of, no, the verse says this, no, the verse says this, well, this verse means this, no, this verse means this. In that contest between one verse, where it's in, in this intense tug of war between these two groups, those are the verses that I selected in my commentary to the book of Galatians. So for that reason, I didn't single out every single verse in the book of Galatians because not every single verse bears a theological um, impact on these two groups uh, in a point of disagreement. In other words, much of the book of Galatians is in complete harmony between the two groups. It's only those few verses, those key passages that seem to stand out between um, the discussions of these two groups. So for that reason, I didn't even uh, highlight, I didn't even comment on verse 17 and 18 um, in, in my commentaries, and that's why that's why my commentary ends at verse 16, and the the uh, uh, the commentary itself stops on page 183 for now. So uh, that's kind of a look at a uh, peek at the future of where we're going in the notes uh, as far as continuing meeting. I'll say this before I get started, real quick. As far as continuing meeting with the students on on Saturday evenings to uh, study the Torah, I'm all for that. Um, 
I haven't picked the topic uh, that I want to continue to study. Uh, I have some ideas in my head, and I think things that the Lord wants me to share with the students, things that uh, I think that they need to hear. So um, I'll make those announcements in the future, probably within the next few weeks. Watch your emails, those of you who are subscribed to the Galatians newsletter. Watch your emails for future um, announcement about where the study will go next, because it's not going to be entitled uh, Exegeting Galatians, obviously, since we're done with Galatians. And so those of you who are subscribed to the Galatians newsletter may opt to unsubscribe and join the new newsletter what I haven't picked a name for it yet or uh, you may just want to continue I don't know we'll, we'll I'll work that out in the future so for that reason I may need a few weeks to to work all the, the behind the scenes logistics out between me and the subscribers and and the the um, uh, preparation for the study, and then we'll jump into perhaps maybe a new type of study, which I think everyone's going to like. I have some ideas. So, all right, let's start, get started with the study. Um, we'll go for the next, oh, about 30, 40 minutes or so. We started about about 25 after the hour, and so we'll we'll go for another uh, 40 minutes or so, and then we'll I'll try to keep the study to an hour if possible. So, starting on the top of page one, uh, I'm starting at the bottom of page 177. We have the verse quoted again in my study. It reads, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And if we just go back and look at verse 12 so that we can get a running start from where we left off last week, Paul is talking about how the Judaizers, the influencers, are desiring to have these Gentiles physically circumcised so that they can make a good showing in the flesh. And they're using, perhaps they, the um, the, the, the influencers, are using their social pressure as Jews, as leaders in the community, or as representatives of the, of the Jewish position that favored uh, proselyte circumcision, um, proselyte uh, conversion. Um, they're using this social pressure or social advantage to to compel, we looked at that Greek word last week, you know, force, anankazo, forcing the Gentiles to be circumcised. And Paul recognizes that this is an impure motive because Paul uh, um, classifies it as uh, in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul himself is uh, painfully aware of what bearing the label of Christ and bearing the authority of Messiah in that day what type of punishment that is going to draw from the traditional synagogues of his day who had re chose to reject Yeshua as the Messianic candidate. So for Paul as a Jew to espouse to faith in Messiah as the, the Messiah of Israel and the Messiah of the world, well then of course that's going to draw the ire of his Jewish counterparts of the traditional synagogue who chose to reject the message of Yeshua and continue on with their uh, look and expectation for a different Messiah. Obviously, that's going to cause a problem for anyone who, Jew or Gentile alike, who names the name of Yeshua. And the same persecution exists today. We know this is because it's their spiritual dimension to the persecution. The adversary himself hates the Messiah, and therefore the adversary is going to um, attack anyone who also bears the name of Messiah. This is in, of course, fulfillment of what Yeshua, the Master, warned us would happen. If we bear his name, they're going to persecute us just like they persecuted him. They're going to seek to kill us just like they sought to and succeeded in killing him. So that's nothing new for Paul. But 
there's another element to this persecution that we also talked about last week, and that's going to propel us into the context of what we're talking about tonight. And that is that in the first century, the um, the heavy push, at least for, as far as we can tell from studying um, uh, the the historical writings and 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 the scriptures themselves, is that the that a good number of the first century Jewish uh, sects or uh, factions within the first century Judaism uh, held to a program that favored um, Gentile proselytism, circumcision, uh, Gentile, a, a proselyte program for anyone who was not born with physical circumcision, for anyone who did not um, receive it when they were an eight-day-old baby boy. And for that reason, uh, the, the, the Israelite uh, people groups uh, saw themselves as the the sole recipients of God's uh, covenants and promises and things like that. So um, what we what we the way this impacts our, our reading of the Book of Galatians is simply this: it's quite probable that the, what caused the most consternation for Paul, uh, as far as combating and and challenging the theology that his um, non-believing Jewish counterparts held to, was that uh, there was this. Um, belief that Gentiles needed to undergo a complete ethnic transformation before they could be counted as righteous in God's sight. And so it was not so much that the Gentiles were being forced to keep Torah like many of the Christian interpretations teach in their in their commentaries and things like that. I don't I don't think that's the primary thing that was that was being pushed in Paul's day. Um and I don't think that was one of the primary things that would have caused consternation within the traditional uh, Jewish synagogues of Paul's day. The th- in other words, let me just put it plainly: the um, factor that the traditional j- synagogues couldn't put up with, or the the um, the uh, uh, feature, or the the the, the distinct um, uh, reality that that the traditional Judaisms of Paul's day, at least a good number of them, maybe not all of them, but perhaps a significant a majority of them, the 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 uh, the detail that they couldn't overlook when it came to Gentiles, was not that they weren't trained in Torah, but rather the fact that they were simply ethnic Gentiles, that they were idolaters. Remember, the, many of the Judaisms of Paul's day, the religious Jewish factions, viewed the Gentiles with suspect. They viewed them as idolaters, and as those who would um, not only corrupt the covenant of God and the, and the Torah of God if, if they were ever given the chance to try and um, keep the Torah, but they uh, the Gentiles were more more frequently characterized as as idol worshipers as those who just couldn't um leave their 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 lust for idolatry behind it was so ingrained in their culture as gentiles especially as greeks uh that it was it was very difficult for religious jews to have close associations with um uh, your average uh, Roman citizen who was steeped in his his Roman emperor worship and his 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 um, Saturnalia and his his uh, his dealings with the, uh, the the Greek temples, you know the the, the prostitutes of the Greek temple and the, the the fact that the banks in in ancient Greece were operated out of the, the 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 temples as well, and the marketplace was the back door of the temple. So at the front side of the temple, there was sacrifice to the pagan gods. And on the back side of the temple, that same meat was sold as as, a, as basically a butcher shop, and uh, you know that's where the Greek peoples 
uh, you know, that's how they shopped. That's how they got their meat. So a lot of their meat was previously sacrificed to idols. All of this was unacceptable to the religious Jew of Paul's day. And so it was very difficult to um, imagine or, or um, uh, allow for Gentiles to join the ranks of Israel, of, of, of righteous Israel or, or such, without go- undergoing some sort of radical uh, religious conversion, as it were. I mean, it, it's... it's it, it's understandable, and this is going to bring us into the context of what we're looking at today and tonight in uh, verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. So Paul's going to single out the, those who are already circumcised. These, these, the, the faction that called themselves the circumcision. In other words, this, this, this um, feature of physical circumcision that we read about in Genesis 17 has, by Paul's day, become a sociological badge, uh, a, a label that one people group was giving themselves and that they had received as we are the circumcision faction. We are the circumcised. You can read about this in the, in the book of Acts as well as other parts of Paul's gospel. So let's look at my commentary and see how this factors into uh, uh, what we need to look at tonight. So Paul says that these people who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And so their motives are impure. According to verse 12, they are seeking to resist or to, to not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Of course, they would be persecuted, these Gentiles would be persecuted by the traditional synagogues on two levels. One would possibly be for their uh, espousing to Jesus as Messiah, and the other level uh, from the synagogue would obviously be the, uh, these Gentiles would receive persecution at the hands of the Jewish authorities if they, these Gentiles, sought to be included among the Jewish ranks without undergoing the popular proselyte program that was being uh, pushed in that day. In other words, they would be persecuted because they were uncircumcised Gentiles. Um, Recall um, Peter's interaction with the leaders in his day in Acts chapter 11, after he, Peter, had gone to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and he ate with them. And what was the reaction of the leaders once they heard that Peter had gone to their house? They said, what? You went into the homes of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. What was the big deal? The big deal was that they were uncircumcised. And therefore, the, the phrase uncircumcised was was equated with, from the eyes, from the standpoint of the, of the Judaisms, many of them of Paul's day, uncircumcised was was characteristically thought of as uh, uncivilized uh, idolaters, uh, unclean, uh, uh, unworthy, uh, unqualified, disqualified, uh, unrighteous—all of those other um, uh, kind of labels that were were, were uh, you know the stain that the Gentiles uh, carried with them just simply because they were not circumcised, like many Jewish males were. All right, so it's within that context of um, these people that Paul is is very upset about who are upsetting his Galatian congregations, he's going to explain that they don't even keep the law. But in what way does Paul say that they're not keeping the law? We're going to look at that tonight. I think there's two very important ways that Paul describes their non-Torah keeping. But he also says that they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. We'll look briefly at what he means by this boasting in their flesh as others. There's at least two ways to understand that as well. 
Let's look at my commentary, top of page uh, 178. Looks like we've got some more uh, Skype students who've joined, and I'm grateful for that. And thank you that you're able that as you join, you uh, mute your microphones as well. So looking at my commentary, I hope everyone can see my screen. We're at the top of page 178. Paul first calls out these influencers, these Judaizers, and he says they don't even keep the law. Now this is kind of ironic, right? It's 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 kind of um, it can't be understood in its normative sense because to be circumcised, according to what we read about in um, in the law of Moses, right? We know that Genesis 17 is a running narrative of what God commanded to Abraham uh, to circumcise the males of his household. And we know from there that Moshe would go on to write in Leviticus chapter 12, around verse 3, I believe, um, that uh, if a woman has a, a baby boy, that that baby boy is to be circumcised on the eighth day. So we know that this not just this is not just circumcision itself is not just a, um, a a narrative that exists in the writings of Israel, the ancient writings to which of which the Torah is, but it also becomes a commandment. It becomes one of the six thirteen according to the to the enumeration of the of of the Rambam. So this becomes one of the commandments. Circumcision is not just a custom, is my point. It's not just a tradition among the Jewish people, right? It becomes a commandment according to Moshe, uh, Leviticus chapter 12. So it's within that that Paul can say that even those who are circumcised, notice he says they are circumcised, but that they themselves do not keep the law. Well, isn't that interesting, right? In what way are they lawbreakers, is my point. All right, let's read this. Quote, top of page 178 in my commentary. Wow. That had to hurt their pride, hearing the Apostle Paul accuse those representing the Jewish norm of failing to uphold one of the central pillars in Israel's history, namely the Torah. Right? The Torah is a pillar in Jewish uh, in Jewish history, in Jewish societies, in Jewish communities. Right? The Torah is not something that's just a novel concept, or it's not just a, a family tradition, or it's not just some important historical book that's been preserved among the Jewish people as a document that we turn to from time to time for, for social inspiration. That's not it at all. The Torah actually forms a, um, a central pillar as the constitution of the Jewish people, at least ancient Israel when they were a theocracy. The Torah was actually their, their kind of their constitution. Nowadays, it, you know, under democracies and things like that, and, and Israel's not a theocracy uh, like it was in, in ancient times. But nevertheless, the, the theological importance of the Torah is a central pillar in Jewish life today, and in the life of Israel today is what I'm trying to say. So for Paul to to label this accusation that they're not even keeping the Torah is a very strong accusation. How can Paul do this? What is the basis of him saying, as a Messianic Jew, that you guys aren't even keeping the Torah? In, which, I don't know if you caught this, but impl impl implicit in his, um, in his accusation against them that they're not keeping the Torah, he's actually suggesting or implying that, that we, the Messianics, we are keeping Torah. You guys aren't, but we are. All right, so let's catch this the 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 um the gist of this. I say in my notes, according to all they understood and professed, right? Paul's op opponents, the Torah was for Jews only. This is what we um this is what we can gather by studying through the ancient writings of of first century Jews that have been preserved for us in the uh, the Mishnah and and uh, you know later the later Talmud and things like that. As far as we can tell, the prevailing notion among the 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 a majority of Jewish people in Paul's day of Israel 
Israelites was that the Torah was a Jewish exclusive document. Therefore, it was not possible for or allowable for Gentiles to to embark on a path known as Torah observance or described as keeping the Torah, the way that the Christians describe it today. So the Torah was for Jews only, and the influencers, no doubt, felt it was their sacred duty to uphold the truth of God's word by preserving it from idolatry. So let's keep reading. According to all that the, many of the Jewish people of Paul's day understood, the Torah was their exclusive possession, the exclusive possession of Israel. And, uh, and in that sense, it was it was... Jewish only Israel. So the influencers thought, well, it's their sacred duty, as they do today. Jewish people today still feel that it's their sacred duty to preserve and protect the truth of the Torah from idolatry and supposed Gentile corruption. There are some branches of Judaism that strongly feel, uh, many of the more orthodox sects, feel that it, it that certain parts of the Torah are actually uh, forbidden to be taught to Gentiles. Uh, in other words, there rest- the Torah is restricted uh, from Gentile use or Gentile st- even studying it. There are certain parts of the Torah that are restricted. Uh, and um, in other words, the, 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 the notion that the Torah is still an exclusive Jewish document is still carried on in 21st century Judaism is the point I'm trying to bring to your attention. So let's keep reading. By commentary, the irony of Paul's words ring loudest. I say irony there because it's 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 Paul saying to people who actually have been circumcised that they're not keeping Torah. That's what I mean by the irony, right? The, it's it's uh, it's interesting that he uses that word. Um, the irony of Paul's words ring loudest when um, one realizes that according to the prevailing Judaisms of Paul's day, circumcision, physical circumcision, was no longer merely another commandment found in the 613 commandments of the Torah, but circumcision had in fact become the pinnacle of social identity from an ethnic point of view. I think most of you understand what I'm talking about there. If you've made it this far in my commentary, you've been following along with me now for two and a half years, then you'll understand what I mean by uh, circumcision being uh, wielded in the Judaism's in, 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 by, by the social groups of Paul's day as an ethnic marker, as a line of demarcation, as something that separated uh, people group from people group. Circumcision itself was seen as that, that entry point. It was the gateway into ethnic Israel, as it were. Let's keep reading. In the Torah, though, as just like we read in Genesis 17, circumcision was originally given to Avraham as a sign of an existing covenant. We know that because uh, just recall that Genesis 17 is where we read about God commanding Abraham to have himself and the males of his household physically circumcised. Yet, uh, you have to remind yourself by going backwards into the Genesis narrative that the covenant that circumcision is a sign of is a covenant that was ratified way back in Genesis 15. Recall that's where uh, Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? Genesis 15, 6. And later on down in that chapter, Genesis 15, God himself passed through the pieces of the animal of that ceremony. And that's where God actually officially ratified the covenant made with Abraham that day. That's Genesis 15. So it is within context of this existing covenant that of Genesis 15 that God then tells Abraham in Genesis 17 this is the sign of the covenant that I ratified with you earlier in Genesis 15 if I could reference the chapters again so uh, Paul understands this but so in Paul originally 
Abraham, uh, circumcision was a sign of an existing covenant. We can also read about that in, in Romans chapter 4, where Paul says that circumcision was a sign and was also a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had before he became physically circumcised. So circumcision plays double duty. It's both a sign and a seal. But um, germane for our study right now is that uh, Paul understood that it was supposed to be a sign of an existing covenant, a sign of the Abraham covenant, it's a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham, this 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 unilateral uh, uh, covenant. Um, I'm sorry, yes, this unilateral covenant that God was making with this man Abraham. But by Paul's day, I go on to say, circumcision had been wrongly elevated by Israel, by ethnic Israel, by social Israel, to its position as a badge of social status. Something you remember, badge is something you wear on the outside of your uniform for everyone else to see. It signifies your your authority in the eyes of everyone else that you interact with. Look at my badge. Look at me. See this? This says this this indicates who I am. This indicates my authority. This indicates my position. It's kind of a, a point of boasting, and it's a badge of social status among people groups of the ancient Middle East. Interesting that it's a badge that can't be seen unless you're in private settings, right? It's not like the Jews were walking around naked saying, look at us, we're circumcised. God forbid, that's that's perverse, right? That, that's, that's profane. But um, what I am saying is that because of the widespread knowledge, not just among Jewish groups, but among Gentile groups, that the Jews, the Israelites, were known as the circumcised. Isn't that interesting? It was it was not a secret, is my point. It was something that they were that they were proud to let everyone know. Hey, guess what? The male Israelite would say in Paul's day, hey, guess what? I'm circumcised as he had this conversation with a Gentile. In other words, he didn't have to, 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 to open his robe and reveal that he was circumcised. It was simply common knowledge among both Jews and Greeks that the Gentiles were, uh, that the Jews were circumcised and that Gentiles were uncircumcised. So that's the point I'm trying to make. It became a social badge of status, right? And it was, it became a bragging point. Uh, to say that we're the social, we're the we're the circumcised, and because of that, we're the ones who are righteous. We're the ones who are acceptable in God's sight. We're the ones who are not tainted with with uncircumcision. Ooh, right. So it ostensibly, I say, ostensibly identified Israel and Israel alone as the chosen people, with no room for other people groups to join their lot unless they too became legally recognized circumcised Jews first. All right, so all of you who are following along with my commentary understand that that's the, the, the setting that we approach the New Testament writings with. We know this from reading the book of Acts. We know this from reading Paul's letters. So those of you, uh, you understand this position about the importance of circumcision and the way it was used as a leverage in the many of the first century uh, uh, communities of Paul's day. So with that, let's keep reading my commentary. So what we have going on in this verse, I believe, is a physically circumcised Torah-observant Jewish man, Paul, accusing other physically circumcised Jewish men, the influencers, of not only violating Torah observance, but of the sin of hypocrisy by demanding that uncircumcised Gentiles, those in Galatia, become physically circumcised, turn into Jews, so that these same non-Torah-keeping yet circumcised men, the influencers, can boast about how they got those poor, physically uncircumcised Gentiles, Paul's readers, to succumb to their, the influencers' threats. Did you guys follow me there? <laughs> it's kind of an interesting uh, interplay between um, uh, the, the, the three people in view, Paul, 
the detractors, right, the influencers, the legalizers, the Judaizers, and the recipients of the letter. These three are in, in having this dialogue with, with one another, as it were, this discussion about what's going on. And Paul, it's at this point in the time that Paul levels his accusation against the influencers themselves in full view or in full knowledge of what the Gentiles are, are hearing, right? Remember, this is a public letter that's going to be read publicly in the... Um, uh, the Galatian communities that Paul is sending this letter to. And so within the public reading of the letter, both the, the Gentile Galatians as well as the, the, the Jewish influencers, the Judaizers, both of these groups are going to hear what Paul says about his accusing the uh, influencers of not keeping the Torah. Right? Of course, that's going to, that's going to, that's going to rattle their their chains, right? That's gonna that's gonna grind their socks. That's gonna that's gonna make things heated. All right, so let's keep reading. This sounds the, the way that Paul uh, uh, accuses Jewish people of not keeping Torah. Jewish people violating Torah. This is not the first time he's he's gonna do this. Galatians is his first letter that he does this. That we see this. Um, but he's going to go on to do it again in Romans. Let's read about this. This sounds actually, in my opinion, strikingly similar to what Paul's going to write about later on in Romans chapter 2. Speaking to fellow Jews, right? He's speaking to fellow Jews in, when he's addressing the influencers. I, I, I agree that they are Jewish. I don't think that they're believers. I think they may have, um, they may, they may have, the, the influencers may have uh, referred to themselves as believers. I don't think they were true believers because of the way Paul describes them in the first and second uh, chapters of the book of Galatians, where he, where he says, if they're preaching, anyone who's preaching another gospel, let them be anathema, let them be accursed. And he even, he even repeats his little oath. That's, that's Galatians chapter 1. I, Paul, say that if, if someone preaches another gospel, let, the, let him be accursed. I don't think that Paul would describe believers that way. So I think that the influencers are not true believers, but they're, they're, Inclusion into the Gentile communities in Galatia, they're doing it under the guise of we are believers and we want to join your group. Remember, in chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul again um, calls them out or, or uh, accuses them of sneaking into the group unsuspectingly, like spies sent to spy out the, the, the freedom that they have in Messiah. That's exactly the terminology that he even uses. So he's speaking to Jews. But I don't think he I don't think that Paul believes he's speaking to believers. So it is to unbelievers, and this is an important ingredient for us to understand. It is to unbelieving Jews that Paul levels this accusation of not keeping the Torah. Because in point of fact, I think that Paul believes that and and, and teaches that believers, according and I'm drawing my theology from I'm getting ahead of myself, but drawing my theology from a later passage in Romans chapter eight where believers who have the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Messiah within them actually are able to not only fulfill the Torah, but actually um, fulfill the righteous requirement of the Torah, but actually uphold the, the true intentions of the Torah uh, by believing in Yeshua and following up to the law of Christ. And we had that whole discussion about the law of Messiah a few weeks back. Go back and listen to uh, the previous podcast. But the point I'm trying to make here right now is that Paul is going to accuse fellow Jews of not keeping Torah once again, which is a very uh, theologically heated accusation. If you want to make a Jew upset, point your finger at him as a fellow Jew and accuse him of not keeping Torah. Because Torah keeping is essentially a hallmark of Jewish life. And it's it, uh, uh, most 
Christians are aware of that um, reality, but I have to say it, state it forthrightly here in my podcast so that you guys don't misunderstand. All right, so look what Paul has to say in Romans 2, and we'll pick up the reading starting in verse 17, and then we'll skip, uh, we'll read all the way through verse 29. It's a lengthy quote right here in the middle of my commentary. Quote, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, right? So Paul is addressing Jewish people. Uh, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. I skipped a few verses between verse 17 and and some of the other verses in the chapter there. Um, You can go back and read the the whole passage in Romans 2 if you want to get get the full list of what Paul accuses these Jewish people of violating, the, the, the laws that he accuses them violating about how um, uh, you teach thou shalt not steal, do you steal, you teach thou shalt not uh, um, covet, do you covet, do you rob temples, things like that. All right. So he mentions all of those things, but he basically summarizes it by saying, and he's talking to Jews in Romans, just like he's talking to Jews in uh, Galatians here. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, right? So again, he's got this charge of breaking the law, even though that is supposedly their one of their uh, um, most prominent social features as seen through not only their eyes, but as seen through the eyes of Gentiles around them. Hey, guess what? We're the Jews. We're the law keepers. We're the ones who uphold the laws of God, right? But Paul says, no, you break the law. And then Paul actually explains in Romans what um, parts of what this, this the, the, the implications of what it entails as these law-breaking Jews interact with law-keeping Gentiles, right? Who, So here's where the irony falls into play is that the Jews who were circumcised, who think that circumcision is a law, therefore the very fact that they that they uphold the program known as circumcision in their eyes uh, uh, validates or, or um, uh, uh, qualifies them as law-keepers. The very fact that they at least keep the, the, the law known as circumcision, uh, in their opinion, qualifies them to be labeled as law keepers. But Paul says that the fact that you break the law, even though you are physically circumcised, you're disqualified from being labeled as law keepers because of, of, of something else. And let's read that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So Paul says in Romans, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, you Jewish lawbreakers. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. <laughs> Something I think he could also say to the the, the um, he could have also said this to the influencers of Galatians. So, uh, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Of course, God would be the one who is measuring their level. They, the Jewish people's level of law keeping or uh, or not law keeping, law keeping or law breaking, or their level of of authenticity when it comes to being counted as circumcised or uncircumcised, right? So he's using the word circumcision, uncircumcision as metonyms for something else, as righteousness or unrighteous. If you break the law, your 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 physical circumcision, which counts for righteousness, which is supposed to be a sign of saving faith, like Abraham had, actually becomes a sign of not faith, a sign of of lack of faith, a sign of 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 of, of misunderstanding what genuine faith means. That's what he means by it becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised, speaking of Gentiles, physically uncircumcised, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision, right, his physical uncircumcision, be regarded as circumcision, meaning heart circumcision, because he's keeping the law. It'll be regarded as 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 keeping the Torah, even though he's physically uncircumcised, which again is a is a kind of irony, because circumcision itself is a commandment. 
Paul, I mean, this is why Paul is difficult to understand. (laughs) Let's keep reading. Then he, Paul says, who is physically uncircumcised, speaking of the Gentiles, but keeps the law, will condemn you, you Jews, who have the written code, the Torah, and circumcision, right, physical circumcision, but you break the law. So again, there's this, this, this ironic... Uh, uh, charge that he's leveling at these physically circumcised Jews. For no one, and Paul concludes by saying, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. I think what Paul means there is, no true Jew is a Jew who is simply circumcised of the flesh, in the fullest sense of what God uh, means to be a Jew. And I think he's playing with the word Jew there as well, because the Hebrew word for Jew, Yehudah, or Yehudi, Jewish, is actually comprised of words that mean praiser, uh, uh, praiser of God. Yehud, Yehud, Hodea Yah, Hodea Praiser Yah, God, Praiser of God. So a Jew, the word Jew itself, or Jewish, actually is related etymologically to the word for one who praises God. And yet, Paul uses this in a wordplay to say for that no one is a one who praises God. No one for no one is a praiser of God who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a praiser of God is one inwardly, and circumcision is made of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise, the praise of this person, is not from man, but from God. Notice he brings in the word praise there because it's part of the wordplay of the word Jew itself. No one is a praiser of God who is merely one who is physically circumcised, because circumcision is outward and physical is not all that is that God entailed by labeling a person a praiser of God. A, a true praiser of God, Paul would uh, would describe, a true God praiser, a Jew, a, a true God praiser in the sense, in the full sense that God imagines, a true God praiser is one inwardly because he has circumcision in the heart as well as circumcision of the flesh from God's perspective, right? The, the true He's playing with the word Jew and God-praiser. By the Spirit and not by the letter. In other words, it's not merely by the letter. His praise, the person, this person that Paul's describing, this true God-praiser, this true Jew, I'm using the word Jew in air quotes with my fingers, is not from man. In other words, not just this outward show in a social. Remember, we talked about the social bragging point of being known as a circumcised Jew. Uh, It's not that his praise comes from the social groups of men, but God himself instead praises this man. That's where we have the wordplay. The man is a praiser of God, yet God will now praise the man because he has the circumcision of the heart. So in one sense, Paul's basically saying that Gentiles who keep the Torah, meaning have faith in Messiah, are in one sense counted as God-praisers, meaning there's a, there's a sense that Gentiles are spiritual Jews, if you want to describe that. I wouldn't completely object to that uh, particular label, uh, Gentiles being labeled as spiritual Jews. They are, in fact, Israelites, in my opinion, because they've been grafted into the tree of Israel, the olive tree that Paul describes in Romans chapter 11, which I believe is the visible covenant people of God known as Israel, and Gentiles are grafted right into remnant Israel. Therefore, Gentile believers who place their faith in Messiah are are allowed to wear the label uh, righteous Israelite, albeit Gentile Israelite. Therefore, they are, in fact, God-praisers. So they are, in that sense, they're remnant Israel. They are spiritual Jews. They're not physical Jews. They're not ethnic Jews. They don't need to be, nor could they ever become. But they are, in fact, 
uh, uh, remnant Israel. They are spiritual Jews in that sense. They are righteous. They are God praisers, and God Himself praises them. Okay, so within that, uh, uh, within the scope of that setting, by of Paul recognizing that that it's these Gentiles who actually have have accepted. Yeshua as Messiah, the central um, uh, uh, commandment of, of, of Torah itself. Um, it is these Gentiles who are actually keeping Torah, as opposed to you unbelieving Gentiles, I'm sorry, you unbelieving Jews, who have rejected Yeshua and rejected something else that I'm going to describe here. Let me finish my commentary by uh, uh, describing what I think Paul the, the the two features I think that Paul is is uh, accusing these these Jewish uh, influencers of violate how the, the uh, how they're violating Torah how are they in violation of Torah here's what I think by the way the if we look at the uh, the um the uh, English of um, Galatians chapter six verse t- uh, thirteen it says even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh both of those um, uh, clauses the first clause even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law that's ambiguous who's Paul talking about is he talking about the influencers is he talking about the Gentile Galatians who have already undergone the the proselyte conversion process. Right? Who's he talking about? So it's a little ambiguous. As well as the second clause where it says they, right? In other words, the pronouns are um, uh, ambiguous. They desire to have you circumcised. Is he referring to those Gentiles who have already undergone the program, who who seek to have the remaining uncircumcised Gentiles also become circumcised? Are they the ones that want to boast in your flesh, or is it in fact the influencers who want to boast in the flesh of the of the Gentiles who have not yet been circumcised but eventually will become circumcised? So there's some some ambiguity. Most commentators recognize the ambiguous nature of this particular verse. So we're gonna have to do a best guess based on context. And here's what I believe is is a, a good strong possibility for the context. Here's what I have to say, my final paragraph here. Uh, uh, to this note. The influencers may have called themselves, quote, Jews by birth, end quote. Recall uh, Galatians 2.15, where Paul, I believe, is is mocking or imitating the, the one of the probably one of the strong mantras of the influencers of his day. We're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Right? He he mockingly uh, repeats that phrase to Peter in his confrontation with Peter for Playing the hypocrite by uh, by separating Peter had separated himself from the Gentiles and pretended like he was always eating with the Jews once those men from James showed up, right? And P- of course, P- Paul sees this as hypocrite because it sends the wrong message that Gentiles, as Gentiles, are not full-fledged covenant members unless they undergo some conversion uh, process and change their Gentile status into Jewish status. And so the G- the Gentiles were bragging. I'm sorry, the Jews bragged about being Jews, but not just bragged about Jews, but they bragged about Jews by birth. And we're going we're gonna to highlight this phrase, Jews by birth, later on if we have time to talk about um, something in the book of Genesis as it ties into the book of Acts. Something I, I told you I would talk about last week. So we're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. So the influence may have called themselves Jews by birth, right? Genesis, uh, Galatians 2.15. But Paul called them lawbreakers right here in this verse. Yeah, that's right. Paul says, I call you lawbreakers. They don't even keep the law, Paul says. In what way? The influencers viewed the Gentiles as disqualified until they became circumcised, that is, Jewish. 
But Paul maintained that those influencers actually disqualified themselves in the eyes of God by not, quote, abiding by all things written in the book of the law, end quote. Recall, there's a typo there, it should say um, 3.10. In, in Galatians 3.10, Paul says, all who rely on uh, works of the law or under curses written, curses everyone who's not abide by, conformed by, conformed to, or does not abide by all things written in the book of law to do them. Remember, we talked at length um, months ago about how that a central ingredient of the Torah that God ex- expects of Israel is that she gravitate towards faith in Messiah. And this this expression of faith in Messiah is actually the central pillar of law keeping or law abiding. Faith in Messiah. Let me say this in no uncertain terms so that those of you listening to my commentary tonight don't misunderstand me. Keeping, uh, 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 having faith in Messiah is the central tenet of keeping the Torah from the perspective of why God gave the Torah to Israel in the first place. The Torah is a tool of God. It is a tool to be used by the Spirit of God to, for one centralized purpose. It has many, many um, lesser purposes to it, but one of the central purposes of the Torah is to bring Israel to the knowledge of her Messiah and indeed uh, uh, shoehorn her into a place where she can make a, a decision uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. It, it, it is designed to um, uh, focus her attention like a like a giant super spotlight shining in a very dark room highlighting a door, in my example, the the super bright spotlight that's piercing in darkness, but focusing on the door. In my example, the the spotlight is the Torah, and the door that that the spotlight is highlighting is the Messiah, is Yeshua. So the the spotlight itself is simply showing where the dork is in an otherwise completely dark room. So one of the central uh, focuses, the goal that Paul's going to say in Romans 10.4, the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah. So until Jewish people come to this conclusion, they are not actually abiding by all things written in the book of the law. And this is why Paul can can accuse them of breaking the Torah. One of the ways of violating the Torah as a Jewish person is failing to believe in Jewish, failing to believe in the Jewish Messiah, name, uh, namely Jesus himself. So that's one of the ways that they don't abide by all things written in the book of the law. The other way that I think Paul can do that as well, I say in my commentary, as well as with their, the influencers, these Jewish uh, counterparts, their violation of the principle of, quote, loving their Gentile neighbor as himself. Love love your neighbor as yourself, we read uh, in the book of Leviticus. Uh, it's, it's the second greatest commandment that Yeshua highlighted. And Paul already brings it out in, in his letter right here in Galatians 5, 14, where he says, the law is fulfilled by loving, the law is fulfilled in this one way, love your neighbor as yourself. So just using the book of Galatians itself as our context, going back to 5.14 as well as 3 verse 10, and then uh, uh, linking that to 2.15, I believe those three parts of the letter give us the context necessary to make this um, um, suggestion that the law-breaking that they were guilty of is at least two parts. It's, 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 it has at least two aspects to it. One is the fact that, that they are not really true believers in Messiah. I think Paul is aware of that, that of, their, of their lack of faith. That, that, that may or may not be, like I said, to Paul, for Paul to, to accuse them of actually being unbelievers. I don't know if, if for certain that's the case. I believe it's the case, but uh, I wouldn't follow my sword for it, so to say. Um, 
but uh, also accusing the influencers of not loving their Gentile neighbors as themselves, like we read in 5.14. I know, now, I know it doesn't say Gentile. I supplied that word. But when Paul says, love your neighbor as yourself, and he's quoting from the Torah, in, in, in the eyes of a Messianic Jew such as Paul, the neighbor that was mentioned in Leviticus, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself, in Israel's day, uh, it's it's natural to assume that the neighbor is your Jewish neighbor, your your fellow Israelite neighbor. But we know from the f- the fullness of of looking at the Torah as a whole that your neighbor must include the non uh, Jewish Israelite, i.e., the Gentile, who has taken up residency within Israel. In other words, the Gentile who be- who has faith in Messiah becomes the neighbor of the believing Jew as well. So the believing Jew now views not just his fellow Jews as neighbors, but he must also view the believing Gentiles as neighbors. And so that's what I mean by abiding, by uh, uh, violating the principle of loving their Gentile neighbors himself. How the influencers have violated this principle? Well, they are rejecting the Gentiles as Gentiles. They're rejecting the ethnicity of the Gentiles, and therefore that's a violation of the principle of love because of their rejection of the Gentile ethnicity. That's certainly not love. That's favoritism, right? That's that's a, a form of of um, of a discrimination against the Jewish uh, the Gentile ethnicity, a form of a kind of a, a racism uh, that elevates Jewish ethnicity above other ethnicities or something like that. So I know those are heated uh, terms uh, to be used in our day, right? Racism, uh, uh, prejudice, things like that. But I believe that's par- partly what's going on with the ethnocentric program that was str- being strengthened in Paul's day with the, the proselyte uh, uh, rituals and things like that. Let's keep reading. Let's finish my commentary. We're at the top of page 179, and basically we're done. So I think that these two... Um, these two ways of looking at their law-breaking from Paul's position, uh, that, in fact, that itself is is strong hypocrisy, right? They're, these hypocritical Jews who say that they are law-keepers, but they themselves violate the law with their strong uh, uh, um, forced circumcision and their rejection of Gentile uh, ethnicity and the... Uh, um, uh, things like that, the fact that they they probably, uh, the, the, the traditional synagogues most definitely rejected Yeshua as Messiah. All of that is a violation of Torah, and it's hypocritical for them to, these Jewish, these unbelieving Jews, to say that we are the ones who are righteous, and you Gentiles, you Gentile believers in Jesus, you're the ones that are unrighteous. You're the ones that are breaking the Torah. You're unacceptable in God's eyes. You, this I'm speaking as if I'm one of the influencers, you Gentiles, you're the ones who are unworthy. You're unacceptable. You're, you're disqualified. Right, <laughs> and yet Paul's saying, "Gosh, you guys, you guys are the ones who are disqualified, and you're hypocrites because you didn't even know of your disqualification." All right, let's let's finish my commentary tonight. Top of page one seventy nine, the final clause in 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 verse nine, uh, verse uh, thirteen that we're studying tonight, where he talks about them um, boasting in the flesh. Uh, I think that perhaps the boasting in the flesh was so that the uh, the Judaizers, the influencers could basically um, continue to brag about um, more and more uh, proselytes that they were making a kind of a uh, maybe there was a, um, a maybe a promotion incentive among the uh, Judaisms of their day to you know if you can bring more proselytes in if you can if you can swell the numbers then hey oh look at look at this region look how many look how many converts we made this week wow let's boast and brag about that or to the sense that they can brag about the fact that hey we got these hapless Gentiles to change their ethnicity right 
the, the sin of hypocrisy by demanding that uncircumcised become physically circumcised so that these same non-Torah-keeping yet circ- circumcised men can boast about how they got those poor physically uncircumcised Gentiles to succumb to their threats, right? The idea of, of, of bragging, uh, Jewish bragging about, hey, guess what? We, we got those Gentiles to give in to our threats. We, we threatened them. We showed them that they can't, they can't be counted as righteous unless they're Israelites, unless they're circumcised, right? The, uh, um, the, the, the bragging rights, uh, things like that. I think that's one way to, to understand what Paul means by, um, his phrase that they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But Tim Hague sees another way, and I don't completely agree with Tim Hague here, uh, but nevertheless I'll include his thoughts since I'm so fond of quoting him elsewhere. There may be other ways to interpret the phrase, quote, that they may boast about your flesh, end quote. Hegg sees the strong possibility that this phrase means the influencers were ready to welcome the Gentiles who underwent proselytism with a full embrace as covenant members to welcome them into the life, culture, and history of the Jewish people. That is, they were ready to fully affirm the Jewish identity of the proselyte. In other words, that's how they may boast about the flesh. Hey, let's boast. Yeah, wow. We're ready to welcome. Come on in. We'll welcome you. Right? So it, there's possible, it's possible that Higgs' uh, interpretation and understanding of this verse and my interpretation, there's probably not a, a, a strong marked difference between the two. Uh, there's probably some continuity between the two of them, but um, that's I wanted to include that for you to see. I lifted Hegg's quote. If you look at footnote number 169 from uh, Tim Hegg, A Study of Galatians, uh, page 227, that's available at his website, uh, TorahResource.com. All right, so with that, we're done with my commentary to verse 13, and next week we're poised to look at verse 14 and 15. We're going to continue talking about circumcision as well again. But for tonight, um, since I promised that I would... Sh- Show, uh, excuse me. Show you something in the um, text that might not be readily available to you if you just read through the English versions um, that are available to you. Let me see if I can do this in ten minutes. I'll, I'll see if I can really be succinct about it without doing damage to what I'm going to try and show you, and without confusing you. Okay, so this is kind of a bonus. Don't consider this to be absolutely critical to understanding Paul, but it's just something I uh, ran across this this week or last week, actually two weeks ago or so, as I was studying through my notes and studying through uh, my resources. Uh, a friend of mine by the name of Rob Vanhoff, who is an um, instructor over at TorahResource.com's uh, uh, Bible Seminary, their Bible teaching program, Rob Vanhoff is a uh, co-host to uh, Caleb Hegg's uh, online weekly radio show called uh, Messiah Matters, formerly known as... Um, uh, the Robin Caleb show, right? So they they host this weekly YouTube um, uh, show. It's a radio show program. I think it's live. It's a live YouTube broadcast, uh, and I'm subscribed to it. You can as well. Robin Caleb show or Messiah Matters. You, you can Google it or YouTube Google it. Google it. You look it up in YouTube. And Rob Vanhoff is a um, he he likes to study the ancient languages. He's got a, a master's, double master's degree uh, in near ancient uh, uh, languages, Greek being one of them. And he brought this point out in one of his. Uh, uh, he gave a talk at the Society of Biblical Literatures uh, uh, meeting one year, and he put it together in a paper. And um, so, what I'm going to explain to you here is something that he brought out. The research it belongs to him. 
Um, so he gets the credit for what I'm about to show you. I don't, I don't have this. I can't take the credit for it myself. So here's what uh, what Van Hoff brings out, and I think it's worth looking at. Uh, don't get hung up on it. I'm going to try not to be too technical um, in what I'm about to explain to you, but I think it's interesting and it bears relevance for us to consider uh, some of the things that we're reading when we're studying through the Book of Galatians, and particularly when we're studying the background of of the, of the societies, the social groups of Paul's day, the first century Judaism that he interacted with. Okay, here's what Van Hoff brought out. If we turn to Genesis 17 and look at the passage that we use in our liturgy about uh, God uh, commanding Abraham to circumcise the males in his household, if we look at verse um, 12, um, uh, Abraham, God tells Abraham that uh, starting in verse 12, I'll just use the English for a second. He that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every male throughout your generations, he that is born in the house or brought with money or any foreigner, that is not of thy house, right? So the command here that Abraham is being given is that from this point forward, Abraham, every male in your household that's eight days old is to be circumcised at that point. So there's basically two things that are being highlighted in this passage that I want to bring to your attention first. One is the fact that Abraham is being commanded to be circumcised himself. So um, Abraham is is commanded to be circumcised as well as the males in his household. Well, Abraham is older than eight days old. So at first, the first recipients of circumcision in Abraham's day would have been the adult males. But going forward in this point, the the males of circum the males who receive circumcision would be eight day old babies. You guys understand the the just the, the logistics of of that's what we're reading here. So the important point is that in verse twelve we find this word this phrase eight days old. All right, and then if it's within the context of verse twelve that that where God says the eight day old baby boy is to be circumcised. It's within in that context that there's a warning given in verse fourteen that God says and the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. So here's a warning that God gives to 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 Abraham. Anyone in your in your of your any males of your company that do not receive circumcision, they will be cut off. They they are covenant breakers. All right. The thing that I want to highlight is that in verse 12, it mentions the 8-day-old babies that receive circumcision. And in verse 14, in the Masoretic text tradition that we're reading here, it just mentions that the uncircumcised male is the one who gets cut off. So given the fact that there are two time frames of circumcision, adult circumcision as well as infant circumcision, verse 14 uh, just kind of includes all of the males. It doesn't it doesn't separate the the adult circumcised males, the adult males from the um, infant males in the uh, warning in verse 14. You guys catching that? All right, you see that there. Verse 14 simply says, the uncircumcised male is the one who is cut off. It doesn't mention anything about the eight-day-old baby boy. So by inclusion, we naturally assume that this, verse 14, the, 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 the warning, is leveled at all males within the Abraham the scope of the Abrahamic uh, family, right? Meaning um, baby boys as well as adult males. It catches both of them without exclusively mentioning the the eight day the eight day feature. But here's something that's interesting. This is what what we call the Masoretic text. There are actually two texts that are um, older by way of history. 
uh, than the Masoretic text. The Masoretic is a tradition, and the oldest surviving text that we have, the, the Westminster Leningrad Codex, or the Aleppo Codex, um, uh, I'm sorry, the Leningrad and the Aleppo Codex, these older texts are, 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 uh, they're, what do we say? They're, they're texts that we discovered later on, but there are some earlier texts that were written, that were actually re- given to us earlier. For instance, the, the, uh, the Pentateuch itself, I'm sorry, the Septuagint itself is older than the Masoretic text. That's what I'm trying to say. Even though the tradition of the Masoretic text is now the authoritative Hebrew that we use for all of our um, English translations, both in the Jewish community as well as the Christian communities. The Westminster Leningrad Codex is the authoritative one that we use, not even the Aleppo, even though the Aleppo, I think, is older than the Leningrad Codex. But nevertheless, the, Leningrad, the, the Aleppo one suffered too much damage in the fire uh, some time ago, so therefore, because most of it was damaged, the, 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 even though it's the, the older of the, uh, the Masoretic traditions, the, uh, the Leningrad Codex is the one that has the, is the most complete and so that's the one that we use, even though it's the newer of the two. But when we compare the the Aleppo and the Leningrad to, say, the Septuagint, the Septuagint itself is much older. So we can turn to older texts and compare those translations to what we now later called the Masoretic version. So this, what we're looking at right now, is the Masoretic tradition. There are two texts that are actually older than the Masoretic tradition, if I'm if I'm getting my history correct, and those two are both the the um, Septuagint, which I think is the oldest of the two that I'm going to describe, the Septuagint is uh, three, two, two or three centuries before the time of Christ. Right? It was started. It was, it, I think, work began back in the 300s BC, and then it was finally compiled around 150 or something like that, 120, 150, something like that. It was finally started to be put together. But there's another older text that also is older than the Masoretic tradition and yet is not authoritative. And that's what's known as the, Samar- the Samaritan Pentateuch. That one uh, dates to around 120s BCE, 130, 141, something like, something like that. In other words, the compilation of it, the, 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 um, the dating of it is similar. Uh, it's close to the, the final compilation of the, uh, the Septuagint itself. So the compilation of those two, the, the Septuagint and the Samaritan Pentateuch, are close in time, although though in my understanding, the Septuagint was older. All right, I said all that to say this. Listen up. This is kind of fascinating. I'll see if I can make this quick, because um, I know I'm going over my hour. If we turn to the Septuagint version, which I'm doing for those of you who are in the live class right now, you can find a, a, a English translations of the Septuagint, which is written in Greek. I, I need you to understand the Septuagint is a translation of the the Hebrew tradition Right, the Masoretic tradition that was being used, but it's a translation into the Greek language itself. And as such, because it was it it was already compiled a few centuries before the time of Yeshua and Paul, it became one of the primary authoritative texts that the early Judaisms, to include the Messianics, they used it. In fact, a good portion of the New Testament that we have today, whenever it quotes from the Tanakh, uh, a good portion of the New Testament Greek that quotes from the Tanakh it, from the Greek source is using the LSX, LXX, the Septuagint. So the point is, Paul found it to be authoritative in his day, even though today's Judaizers have rejected it, uh, the Septuagint, because they feel that the Christians tampered with it, right? That's basically why the, the Judaisms of today reject it. 
and they go back to the the um, they go back to the uh, Masoretic text as their primary source. The other reason is because um, the uh, uh, the Judaisms of the day prefer to study in the Hebrew rather than studying in the Greek, which is understandable. So the, the Septuagint is a Greek translation. It's one of the oldest translations from the original Hebrew into a different language. And as such, it, it becomes important for us when we study the text. So here's what Van Hoff highlighted for me in my studies. If you look at the Septuagint of Genesis 17, which I've got pulled up for the students in the live class, if we turn to Genesis 17 and drop down to verse 12, we read, this is the the English. This is one English translation of the Septuagint. There are a few different English translations, but this is one of the prominent ones. Um, uh, I don't think this is Sir uh, Sir Lancelot's uh, translation. Yes, his real name is Sir Lancelot, who translated. The, he's a he's a famous translator of the Septuagint into. It's not the same. King Arthur uh, Sir Lancelot, but he's one of the primary transla translators of the Septuagint into English. If you if you decide to go looking uh, translations up, this isn't his translation. Uh, this is a different translator. I can't remember who who translated this, um, um, but it's it's put together by. Um, uh, Elpinor uh, website, El elpinos.net. And their translation into the English, starting in verse 12, says, And the child of eight days old shall be circumcised by you. So this first clause, notice, And the child of eight days old shall be circumcised by you. Well, we already looked at the Masoretic English, and uh, the Masoretic uses this phrase, eight days old, as well. If I go back over to the to the uh, Greek, uh, the Hebrew of verse 12, He that is eight days old, right? If I just highlight uh, this first um Uvein Shmonat Yamim. This Hebrew part, Shmonat Yamim, is eight days old. That's what Shmonat Yamim means. So if we go look at the Greek version of this first clause, uh, we have it pulled up here, right here in the Greek. Kai Pai Dion Octo Hemeron Pert Metheisatai Human. All right, so this Greek phrase here. Uh, captures the uh, Greek word necessary for eight days. The word here, eight days old, is uh, octo. Uh, most of you who know the English word for eight uh, is related to the word oct, octo or octa, uh, eight days old. Octo is the Greek word for eight there. So, um, so far so good. The Greek of the Septuagint agrees with the Masoretic text of the uh, English. They both mention eight days old. But when we get to verse 14, where we have this warning from God, where God says, and the uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, he's the person that gets cut off. If you look at the Hebrew, there's no mention of the shmo, the shmonat yamim anymore. There's no mention of eight days old in the original Masoretic Hebrew. But, but... If we go to the Septuagint of that same verse, verse 14 here, we have the Septuagint Greek says, or the English says, and the uncircumcised male who shall not be circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin on the eighth day. Ah, well, that's different. The Septuagint actually mentions the eighth day. And if you look at the Greek here, uh, again, this first clause, uh, let's capture it right there. Uh, let's see if I can read this Greek without butchering it. Kai aperitomas arsen has u peret me thesatai te sarka tes acrobustias autu te hemera te achdon. All right. Um, you're wondering, well, what does that all mean? All right. It, it translates the same English that I just read. And the point I want to highlight is that the word eighth day 
uh, here we have uh, Ogdon here. This is similar to uh, Ogdon is similar to Octo up here that I'm highlighting for those of you in live class. So in verse 12, we have Octo, Octo, which is the eight, the word eight there in English. And in verse 14, we have Hameratin um, Ogdon, which is the, the eighth day which corresponds to the eighth day there in the uh, English. So the point I'm trying to make is that Van Hoff highlighted the fact that um, this Septuagint text seems to represent, remember the Septuagint is a tradition that dates back as far as 300 BCE. So there had already become this tradition within the Septuagint, I'm sorry, within the Jewish community that circumc circumcision was tied to the eighth day, not necessarily adult circumcision, but it was exclusively an eight-day male occurrence. So you, we can begin to see this by the by the presence of the um, the fact that Septuagint in verse 14 in the um, warning that God gives includes the phrase uh, the eighth day, whereas the Masoretic text does not include that. And then likewise, if we turn to the Samaritan Pentateuch, I've got um, uh, an online version of the Samaritan Pentateuch pulled up for you as well. This is one author's translation of it. Um, the Samaritan Pentateuch, again, uses a different script. Uh, it dates back to about the 2nd century before Christ, or so 2nd century BCE. So in age, it's older than the Masoretic tradition that we have, meaning the the, 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 Lex, the, Aleco, the Aleppo Codex and the um, Leningrad Codex, those two codex, codices that we have that we use for our primary Hebrew source in, in both Judaism and Christianity today. The Samaritan Pentateuch is an older uh, translation. It represents an older uh, a tradition. And so if we turn to this, uh, I have an online version that I've got pulled up for you, the interlinear Pentateuch. If we turn to this, the, the English of Genesis, let me just uh, pull up Genesis chapter, scroll down to Genesis chapter 17. You guys kind of know where I'm going with this, but I thought I'd show it to you anyway. Genesis 17 from this translator's verse. If we look at verse 12, he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Okay, so that's not, there's no surprising there. The, the Masoretic text and the Septuagint and now the, the Samaritan Pentateuch all have the word eight day old in Genesis 17:12. That's to be expected because the Greek and the Hebrew both agree with one another in mentioning the eight days. But when we get to verse 14 of the Samaritan Pentateuch, notice that it says, and the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised in day the eight, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Wow. Yes, the Septuagint Pentateuch, which is written in a, a, a script that's uh, kind of what we might call Paleo-Hebrew. If we translate that Paleo-Hebrew script back into English, it includes language that mentions the eighth day, something that is absent from the Masoretic tradition that we use today. So you guys catching it so far, we have at least two ancient traditions within Judaism that are older than the time of Paul that both in Genesis 17:14 bring in this language of eight day whereas the more the newer Masoretic tradition that we have does not in Genesis 17:14 mention the eighth day uh, uh, detail you guys catching that so far all right what's the import of, of how that impacts us in Paul's day Here's where I think it impacts us. If we turn to Acts chapter, let me see how quick I can do this because I'm, I'm, I'm belaboring my time. I apologize. Let me make an apology for those of you who are in my live class that I'm going a little over. If we turn to Acts chapter 15, recall that there's a, a, a narrative by Luke that describes 
starting in verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then we jump down to verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses, end quote. So if we look at just verse 1 and verse 5, it seems from a surface reading that there's two part two groups in view. There's the Jewish group that favors circumcising males. In other words, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. And then uh, these would be the Jewish group that favored circumcising males, as well as the believing Pharisees who also agreed with this policy of circumcising males. Because even the believing Pharisees in verse 5 say it's necessary to circumcise them. The them assuming assumed to be the Gentiles who are wishing to be counted as righteous among the Jewish uh, communities. So it's necessary to circumcise them. So um, so it seems to be that at a surface reading that there's two groups in view. A Jewish group that favors circumcising males and a Gentile group who would be the recipients of the circumcision. You guys catching that? The them is the Gentiles and the believing Pharisees would be the Jews. And so verse 1 seems to be unbelieving Jews or possibly believers, but Luke doesn't call them believers. He just says certain men came down from Judea. So the men from Judea, whether they're believers or not, seem to agree in their theology with the believers in verse 5. It seemed, at least that's the surface level reading. But according to Van Hoff, if we look at the Greek of verse 1, let me just turn to it. If we look at Acts 15.1 in the Greek, Right? And certain ones come down from Judea were teaching the brothers this clause if you are not circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Um, the Greek for this word circumcise, parat uh, metheta, um, this Greek verb uh, is cast in a tense that is known as the aorist tense. Um, it's actually the aorist subjunctive passive. The aorist tense, if we look at my Greek cheater here, um, uh, that I've got pulled up for you on the screen. The aorist tense is, I'm just looking at this part right here. The aorist tense is a kind of a simple occurrence or a summary occurrence without regard for the amount of time taken to accomplish the action. So uh, uh, Van Hoff highlights that basically, if I can just make this quick for you, the aorist tense essentially describes something that happens in the past. And so um, if that's the case, uh, without, in other words, it doesn't really uh, focus on the time so much as it, it, it focuses on the occurrence, that it's a one-point-in-time action. It focuses on the action, not necessarily the time. But sometimes it can be translated as a simple past tense. Well, if we were to translate it that way, then instead of saying, let me just jump back into the English, instead of saying, translating as, but certain men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, we should in fact change this verb tense, are, into a past tense, were. So instead, and actually we say, that unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses. What does that mean? Were circumcised according to the custom of Moses? Well, um, Van Hoff shows that this could represent actually the eight-day tradition that had begun to be prominent in, in, in Paul's day. In other words, according to the custom of Moses refers to not just the narrative that we read about in Genesis 17 where Abraham is described as becoming circumcised, but more importantly, the Mosaic uh, command that we find in Leviticus 12, verse 3, I believe, that commands eight-day-old baby boys to be circumcised. Eight-day-old baby boys is the important point. In fact, indeed, if you follow Van Hoff's theology and read through the book of Luke and the narratives of Luke describing 
uh, Yeshua becoming circumcised, uh, John the Baptist becoming circumcised, uh, things like that, then Luke is careful to mention that they were all circumcised on the eighth day. Luke continues this tradition of eight, the eight dayers. The eight dayers is my point. Luke makes sure that we, we the readers know that Yeshua is an eight dayer. He's not just a circumcised person, a male, but he's an eight-day male circumcised baby. So is John the Baptist. Paul himself uh, highlights this fact when he describes his own circumcision, when he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So there seems to be this, this almost this hint in the apostolic scriptures of this, this not just people who, not just Jews who favor circumcising males, but more specifically, Jews who hold to this eight-day tradition where Meaning, you only get one chance to catch it. If you as a male don't get it on the eighth day, well then there's no chance for you to be counted as righteous if you do it later on in life as an adult male. You guys catching the point. So if that's the case, then the men who come down from Judea in verse 1 actually represent a more strict Jewish circumcision position of eight-day-old baby boy circumcision. And in that case, there is really no allowance for male circumcision of Gentiles later on as adults, meaning the Gentiles are out. That's it. It's a hard-line position, meaning the, the, the men in verse 1 of Acts 15 would be saying, basically, these Gentiles were not circumcised in eighth day as baby boys. And because they weren't already, in other words, changing this verb tense of are circumcised into the aorist tense of were circumcised, because they weren't already circumcised as eight-day-old baby boys, meaning according to the custom of Moses, meaning on the eighth day, well, then... They have no hope. That's it. They're out. That's the hardline position that perhaps these men in verse 1 would be taken. However, verse 5 would represent maybe a more moderate position by the believing Pharisees who say, no, it is necessary to, and if we look at the Greek of circumcise in verse uh, 5, uh, if I go to my Greek, turn back to my Greek version, and go down to verse 5 now, um, uh the moreover rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, saying, it is necessary to circumcise. We now have a Greek verb, uh, paratemnane, and the verb is in a different tense. It's actually in a present infinitive active tense. And this present tense in the Greek, if I use my cheater, um, the present tense of the Greek um, often uh, denotes what we might call a continuous kind of action, um, a state of persistence. We could sometimes put this present tense of the Greek into what we might call an ing, kind of like a um, um, uh, the ing, the ongoing tense, um, the uh, not the genitive, but the uh, the the the, uh, the what's what's that the um, Oh, uh, I'm forgetting the English word, but basically an ing. If that were the case, meaning an ongoing, if that's the case, we could say that the Pharisees believe, saying it is necessary to be circumcising, not to circumcise, but to be circumcising them, meaning it's an ongoing program, and to be commanding them, this next Greek word, command them, is actually also a present infinitive active, and to be commanding them to... And the word keep there, terrain, is also a uh, present infinitive. So we got three present tense, uh, present infinitive, present infinitive, present infinitive. All three, circumcise, command, and keep are all present infinitive verbs in the Greek. So basically the Pharisees could be saying it's it's necessary to to be circumcising them and to be commanding them to be keeping the law of Moses. Speaking of the Gentiles. 
You guys catching that? So this would represent a Pharisaic tradition among the believers that was a little more relaxed, not the hardline position of eight-day-old baby boys must have been circumcised then, and if you weren't circumcised the end of the day, oh well, there's no hope for you as a Gentile, but instead a more relaxed position that says, okay, let's accept the Gentiles in as long as they agree to the program of becoming or being circumcised. It's kind of this, this uh, we support a program. That's why I keep saying of, of being circumcised, right? It's in the uh, it's in the um, present tense, meaning it's an ongoing program. Uh, if that's the case, then there's actually two groups uh, that are being represented in the book of Acts, at least in chapter 15. The first group being a hardline eight-day-old baby, eight-dayers in verse 1, and then the, the kind of the uh, moderate uh, believing Pharisees. And then, of course, we have um, the, the third group being Peter and Paul and and the rest of the Messianic um, uh, group that finally agreed that, nope, Let's take a third position. Instead of taking the hardline position that they had to have been, right, past tense, aorist tense, had to have been circumcised in the eighth day or else there's no hope for them. That's one position, and we're going to reject that as Messianic uh, believers. And this middle position of the f- believing Pharisees of um, of allowing the Gentiles to come into the groups and be counted as righteous, but only if they undergo uh, the program of being circumcised, right? This 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 Greek word, this uh, present infinitive active verb. Uh, as long as they under they agree to the program of being circumcised, of becoming circumcised, right? It's not really a future tense. So that's how I keep translating it into uh, a present tense: being circumcised, not be not becoming. Um, so it's necessary to to be circumcising them is how I'm translating it. Wouldn't from the Greek. Uh, so that's another middle position. But then the the, the notice that the the um uh, the position that the apostolic leaders took the Jerusalem Council decided on was their own position that said, "Nope, we're not even going to allow. We're not even going to ask them to be circumcised at all." The, speaking of the Gentiles, so this is the what we might call the messianic position. We're not even going to ask them to be circumcised before they can be counted as righteous. So, I wanted to bring all of that up to say that when we're reading through the Book of Galatians, it's possible that these uh, influencers. Um, may have represented one of those two hardline groups. Uh, it seems to be, in my opinion, that the if that's the case, if if Rob Van Hoff has a case to be made, which is it's kind of a minority position because if you read through the translations from the Greek of Acts 15, th- there's only like one or two translations of the plethora that I checked, like about 20, that even render that Greek uh, aorist tense into a past tense uh, verb. Um, Acts 15.1. It's hard to find that uh, in, in any different, any particular version that would agree with that. 15.1, I got a, a bunch of parallels pulled up. Um, unless you are circumcised, notice the tense of the verb here, are circumcised. Most versions render it in a, a kind of a future sense as if it's something that you can do later on in your life as an adult, unless you are circumcised or become circumcised, like a future tense. But if you look at, for instance, say the Berean Study Bible, um, I'm sorry, if you look at, which version is it? Uh, unless you were circumcised, there's one that's um, that's in the past tense. Uh, R, except R, B, B, U, R, shall. Here we go. The Darby Bible translation is a notable difference. And certain persons having come down from Judea taught the brethren, if ye have, if ye shall have not, if ye shall not have been circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Notice the Darby translation uh, is truer to the to the aorist tense of the Greek by putting it shall not uh, shall not have been circumcised. 
meaning it's something that already took place as an eight-day-old baby boy, uh, if we follow along with the eight-dayers principle, uh, because it says accustomed to the custom, according to the custom of Moses, which kind of hints at that old eight-day-old eight-day-old thing. So basically, Van Hoff would kind of fall into the tradition of this maybe Darby translation, because the rest of them all have, unless she be circumcised, kind of putting it in a future tense or something that's um, a foreseeable future event that could take place as an as a as a a, a male, as an adult male. So I, I just wanted to throw all that out to you and give you a kind of a an interesting background to this. Perhaps I think the influencers represented the, that same position as the middle as the believing Pharisees, meaning they were lenient to or allowable of, of males, uh, even though they were adults, of taking on circumcision later on in life, which means if Van Hoff is correct in his assessments of, of the Greek text there, which, like I said, I showed you from the Septuagint and from the uh, Samaritan Pentateuch that there was possibly a minority position that, that existed in Paul's day that took a hardline position that eight-day-old baby boys exclusively were the recipients of covenant membership. And therefore, if you weren't already, if you didn't already receive this as at, when you were eight days old, there was no hope for you after that. I think the influencers probably didn't take that position. Otherwise, they wouldn't have even been, uh, they wouldn't have even snuck into the Galatian communities. I think, that in fact, they probably were, they, the influencers, were probably of the uh, persuasion, like the believing Pharisees of Acts 15.5, that were allowing or uh, of Gentile male adults to take on circumstances circumcision in the proselyte ritual ceremony and then take on Jewish status. All right, so I'm going to leave off with that. I hope you guys found that interesting Um, and some more meat for those of you who are a little more uh, into word studies and things like that. Uh, Let's close down the commentary. I went over tonight, uh, wow, an hour. This is probably one of the longer studies that I've done tonight, but I hope it was uh, worth it. Uh, Let's close in prayer, and next week we'll meet uh, and study the next two verses, and then the final week for our Galatians study is the week after next. So if I look at my uh, calendar, um, again, we're just for those of you who may have missed it earlier on, we're not going to take a break, even though we're at our 10 weeks semester break. This is week number 90, but we're not going to take a break like we normally would for two weeks. Instead, we're going to meet next week on February the 10th, and then we'll also meet next week on February the 17th. And as far as I can tell, that will possibly be the end of the study. I might meet one more week, February 24th, to do what I call like, like a comprehensive summary of the whole book. I may, in fact, I'm, I'm leaning towards doing that. And then as far as I'm, I'm concerned, I think we'll finish the whole study for the book of Galatians for the month of February. We'll stop at the 24th. And then, who knows where we'll go from there. We might go into a different type of study. We might go into um, we might not meet at all. I'm still praying about that, and so I, I, I solicit your prayers as well. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to study with the students. Again, I pray that you'll continue to take these words and make them relevant for us, make them powerful in our lives, cause us to 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 act on them and to, to uh, support them and to uphold them and to teach them and to preach them and to live them and to walk them out in our lives by faith. Uh, as we continue to seek to be pleasing to you, Lord. Thank you for forgiving us for where we fall short. Uh, help uh, help us as a community to strengthen uh, one another, to love one another, to, to uh, pray for one another, and to support one another as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you 
but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.